Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I'll say it one more time. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now imagine that I continue chanting that over and over again for the next 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and not just chanting it, but yelling it throughout the building, getting right up in your face and screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now imagine that going on for two hours straight, and not just one individual, but an entire city. Images of the riots that swept the nation last summer come to mind. Images of January 6th come to mind. See, unfettered passion whether it's fueled by truth, lies, or something in between, leads to chaos. Leads to chaos. And more so when that passion is tied to a way of life or one's livelihood. See, this is precisely what we see taking place in the city of Ephesus. As the good news of Jesus begins taking root Because as the good news of Jesus takes root, not only are souls saved, but lives are changed and idols are smashed or in this case burned to bits. And when an individual's idol is messed with, whatever that might be, this is when the claws come out. And I'm sure we've experienced this in our own lives and I'm sure we've seen this. We've all seen it. What we're going to look at this morning is how that the gospel forces us to make decisions. We, if we're going to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus, we need to decide whether we will allow the story of the cross and the redemption of Jesus to shape our lives, or if we will continue submitting our wills to the gods of this world. But see, what's impossible for the follower of Jesus is to have it both ways. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. I plan on offending everybody. That's my goal um, because I'm an equal opportunity offender. And I think that's important because I think we all need to be offended by this sort of thing. Because I think the truth of the matter is we all carry around idols We all carry around things that we grip onto so tightly that if they were try, if someone were to try to remove them from us, we would lose our minds. Think about that. What are those things in your life that if someone tried to take them from you, chaos would quickly follow? So that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, Acts 19. We're not going to be able to cover every single element of this chapter. There's some wild things that happen in this chapter, some things that I honestly don't have answers to. I don't understand why Paul's clothes and handkerchiefs had healing power, but they did. And we're not really going to figure out why. But we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, so I would encourage you to follow along in your bulletin. On the right side, there's a simple outline, and on the left side is a portion of the passage, but not the entire thing. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open those up, or you can flip out your phone and go to a Bible app on there. So point one, all the residents of Asia, verses 1 through 10. So let's take a look at the first seven verses. And it happened... 
that while Apollos was at Corinth, if you remember Apollos from two weeks ago, he was schooled in the, the baptism of Jesus by Priscilla and Aquila. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Keep your mind on that. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 in all. The gospel disrupts. A couple observations. Paul returns to Ephesus. He found some disciples. Apparently, these were disciples of John the Baptist. Now, notice there's some similarities here between Apollos and this crew of 12 men. Both of them were convinced of John's baptism, but they had not yet fully understood what was going on with Jesus. And in this case, these particular men didn't even know that Jesus was around yet, which is so interesting, right? In a world that we live in, where information goes like that, in the ancient world, information didn't travel as quickly. Paul then baptizes them, and what do we see? A mini Pentecost occurs. He preaches the Christ, and they believe. He preaches the Christ, and they believe. And what happens? The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They start prophesying and speaking in tongues, and there are 12 men in all. Just little details that Luke throws in there to, to kind of draw our minds to other events. So, so some interesting conclusions. The word had not yet fully spread about the coming of the Messiah, but when they heard it and were baptized, they too were incorporated into the family of God, noting once again that what happened in Acts 2 was for all people the coming of the Holy Spirit, including these who had not yet been clued into the fact that the Messiah had come. In other words, God is affirming these events. Right? Whenever we see these signs and wonders taking place, we have to wonder, what are the signs pointing to? They're pointing to the Christ, and we're also noting that God is placing his, his stamp of approval on what's happening. God is saying, yes, yes, these are mine. These are my people. These are my people. Another thing that pops up, they mention there being 12 men in all. And this draws our attention back to what Jesus was doing from jump, reconstituting the people of Israel, thus extending and confirming their vocation, their role to what? To be a light to the nations. Remember, this, this gospel wasn't just meant for the people of Israel, but rather it was to extend to the ends of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation, something that we'll see being rolled out once again in the next few verses. So in other words, the good news of Jesus, for those of us who believe, draws us into the family of God draws us into the family of God. We're adopted children of God. And I know I say this regularly, but it's that important and it's that wonderful that we should be called sons and daughters of God. That's what the gospel does. We're adopted into the family of God. And also, it provides for us a path which we are to follow, a path, a path of cross-shaped discipleship which changes everything. It changes everything. 
And that's kind of been a theme throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel comes into a community and everything changes, for better and for worse, right? Everything changes. See, people are brought into the family of God while others start getting frustrated and angry and and confusion sort of kind of boils over. So there's two groups of people always when the gospel is proclaimed. When the good news comes into a community, when it comes into a family, when it comes into wherever it comes into, there's two groups of people, those who believe and those who want nothing to do with it. And those who want nothing to do with it either will respond in anger or indifference. But either way, they want nothing to do with the king of kings, the one who rules over all creation. And so the gospel disrupts. The gospel changes everything. And that's what we see taking place. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 10. It says, And he entered the synagogue, Paul, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples. I'm assuming those are the same 12 men that he spoke of previously. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So some observations here, right? Paul follows his usual pattern of going to the Jew first. And notice what he's reasoning and persuading them about, the kingdom of God. See, the gospel, see, often I think we get so obsessed with our own personal salvation, which is important. Don't get me wrong. We, we can't neglect those things. Oh, but the gospel's so much bigger. It's about the ushering in of a kingdom. The ushering in of a kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit about this in our upcoming series on the Lord's Prayer. Because if you remember the Lord's Prayer, you remember that we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I use the old English. It's just how I was taught it. And so what else do we notice? We notice that some of them are stubborn and they continue in unbelief. So what does Paul do? He takes his disciples with them and he withdraws from them. I find that really interesting, right? Because I think there are times where we need to recognize that, that we got to move along. we got to move along. See, Paul recognizes, like, all right, it's not, it's not happening here. Let me take those who believe, my disciples, probably those 12, and it seems like there were some others who believed as well. And they're like, you know, like, let's move along. And where do they move along to? They move along to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the hall of Tyrannus, which is basically a lecture hall named after someone, either the landlord or the regular speaker there, and he reasons daily for two years. For two years. Think about that. That's a long time. I believe this month marks my second year being here, two years. Lots happened in two years, right? Would we agree? Lots happened in two years. And he reasons daily. And what does he read? So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so walking in the footsteps of Jesus, Paul takes his 12, right? Because, because the story of Jesus is the story of the disciples, and it is our story ultimately. We participate in the life of Jesus. We share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbors so that what's true of Christ becomes true of us. Because when we're brought into union with Jesus, we get everything that Jesus has. That's what it means to be brought into union with Jesus. 
And so Paul is actually playing this out almost identically as he takes his 12 and he proclaims the good news of the kingdom in particular. Because remember what Jesus was preaching about regularly. He preached about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So much so that everyone in the region was hearing about Jesus. Everybody in the region. Now, that might be hyperbole. We're not sure. But, but I think it's safe to say a lot of people heard about Jesus. In other words, the gospel is taking root. And wherever the gospel takes root, change and disruption are inevitable. Change and disruption are are inevitable. Another thing I want to point out is that the way of the cross is a path of friction and static. Think about it. Those who were in unbelief, what did they do? What did they do? They spoke evil of the way, right? They mocked these disciples. And it was probably a little bit more intense than just like, look at these idiots. It's probably a little bit more than that. But disruption follows in the wake of the good news being proclaimed. It just, it just is what it is, right? The word of God does not come back void. What does that mean? That means things change when the gospel's preached, period. Things changed. You're either, you're either saved and brought into the family of God or you're condemned. Like those are the things that happen when the good news is proclaimed. And so the text goes on, verses 11 through 20. Jesus, I know, but who are you? And, and, and this is where we begin to see where that change and disruption begins to catch the eye of some of the locals. Before we read the text, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. We're not going to be able to cover everything, as I said, but some of these things are just confusion. But some historical context, I think, will be helpful, right? So they're in Ephesus. And Ephesus, which was the center of Greek religious life in the ancient world. And Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. And the Artemis cult was deeply embedded into the culture of the city, which is why there's so much interest in magic and spiritual things. They were a deeply religious people. Remember, Pastor Daniel was here last week, and he was preaching on that passage in Acts 17, where Paul was before the Areopagus, and he said to them, I see that you are very religious. Religion was all over the place in the ancient world. Spirituality was something that was, was of regular conversation with people. And I think it's important to note, which is difficult for us, right? As modern Westerners living in the shadow of the Enlightenment, the presence and apparently normal discussions about the spiritual realm, miracles, magic, and things like spirits and exorcism are regular topics of conversation. And that's confusing for us. And to be quite honest, I think we're actually missing out on something because I think we're so formed by the Enlightenment that we forget that there is a spiritual realm that exists. There has to be. If, if our faith is real, there has to be a spiritual realm. But we don't really pay attention to it because we're so filled with, with ideas like science and facts and logic and things like that, which are all important elements of this world, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's a spiritual realm that, that exists. And so let's see what's going on in this text. And God was doing extraordinary miracles, verse 11, if you want to read along with me, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, right, you know, just regular itinerant Jewish exorcists, you, you, you know those, like they're around, right? No big deal. Itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook 
to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The good news of Jesus disrupts. So a couple things, right? Paul's clothing has healing properties attached to them. I don't know what that means. I'm not even going to pretend to try and explain it to you. I have no idea how to preach about it other than I believe it. It happened. And I wonder if we're neglecting some of the supernatural elements of the Christian life. I don't know the answer. A couple other things, right? The people take notice of this, and they try, and they try to exploit the name of Jesus. Right Now, that's something we've seen take place. There are people that use the name of Jesus for their own profit, for their own gain. But then what happens? While this exploitation might fool the people, it doesn't fool the demon. It could fool the people, but it doesn't fool the demon who proceeds to mock them. And it seems like he beats them and they're humiliated, right? They're sent running out of the house naked. I mean, picture this scene, right? This group of itinerant Jewish preachers, exorcists, are running out of the house naked, humiliated. That's quite a scene and probably beat up a little bit. All right, there's a demon beating that takes place here. And news spreads of this event throughout Ephesus, and a group of what appears to be exorcists and magicians repent and decide to follow Jesus, and they show their faithfulness by burning all of their books of magic, totaling, according to one scholar, what would have been equivalent to a year's wage for 137 workers. A year's wage for 137 workers. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I tried to do some math. I think this is like over $9 million in our currency today. I could be totally wrong. You can check that. But that's the math I came up with. Now, the point's twofold. First, God is so sovereign, so sovereign, meaning that he is in charge of everything that takes place, that he takes the exploitation of his good name and he uses it to bring about radical change in the lives of people. And he does it through the hands of demons. That's how sovereign God is. That's how in control our Lord is. That he uses the demons to accomplish his will. Sometimes my, my, my daughter, she'll talk about how she's, she's scared of Satan, right? Which I think is, there's a healthy place for that. But, but what I try to remind her of, what I think we all need to be reminded of, is that the demons, that Satan, that they bow in submission to Jesus. They bow in submission to Jesus. And you know what's incredible? That when Jesus stepped foot out of that grave, oh, he crushed them to pieces. Right, that's D-Day for us, right? And on D-Day, the war was basically won. 
We just had to make our way to Berlin. But we had basically won the war at that point. And so the war was won at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And right now, we're just cleaning up the mess until the day he returns. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is Lord. And even the demons have to bow in submission to him. That's good news. That's good news. The second thing is that the good news of Jesus is so good that the people were willing to completely shift their lives at enormous financial cost to themselves and probably their families. They burned all their books. See, books weren't like, like you can go to the store, you can go to like a, like a bargain bookstore and get, a, and get books for like pennies. That's not how it was in the ancient world. The writings, parchments, these were expensive items totaling an enormous amount of money, a year's wage for 137 workers, and they burn them. They burn them. Why? Oh, because the good news of Jesus is so good. It's so good. I started thinking to myself, like, why, why would someone in the ancient world and now become a Christian? Well, in the ancient world, you know what they were noticing about the church? They were, they were noticing that this was actually a community of faith who cared for one another. This is a community of faith that, that had a different ethic in the way they lived. Women were cared for in the body of Christ, which was different from the world around them. Slaves were put on equal footing with their masters, which was different from the world around them. See, see the, the good news changes everything. It disrupts culture. It disrupts communities. My prayer is that, is that this place this people would be a people who, who I have, as I've said, week in and week out, show the world what God is like. That's our role. That people would, would take, a, take a glimpse over in this direction on North Bay Ave and, and see a family, not, a, not, a, not an organization, not even necessarily a congregation, but a family who cares for one another, who shoulders one another's burdens, who shows them the God of Israel, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who shows them what God is like, who shows them Jesus. See, see, what we see happening here in the text is that following Jesus, and I've said this before, is not a game, which seems to be a major theme in the book of Acts. Faithful witnesses are shaped by the cross and willing to lay it all down for the sake of our Lord. That's what a faithful witness is. That's what we've been called to be. That's who we are. And you know what I'm encouraged by our, by our small church? I am. Because I've seen this faithful witness kind of un, un, unfold throughout this last year. Not that we didn't see it prior to that, but this last year we've, we've kind of had to be those faithful witnesses, caring for one another, shouldering one another's burdens. I know myself personally have been so blessed by the people in this room. Through a very difficult year, I've experienced the grace of God coming from our people in this room. The people who are watching online have blessed me and my family tremendously. And in just a minute, I just want to thank you for that. Thank you for being, being in my family, in our family. Thank you for that. And so the text continues. Great is Artemis. Verses 21 and following. Some of the people are too attached to their gods. 
That's what we're going to see happen here. Some of the people are too attached to their gods, their addictions, their livelihoods. See, some people don't want anything to change. They, want their, they don't want their lives to be shaped and formed by the cross of Christ. In our own culture, we see this in a variety of ways, right? Parents unwilling to balance their careers with spending time with their children. Men and women who can't seem to keep their eyes from wandering outside of their own marriages. Individuals who are willing to lie, cheat, and steal so they can advance in their careers. The majority of us in this room who can't seem to put our smartphones down, myself included. We've talked about this before. The reformer, John Calvin, says that the human heart is a factory of idols. We just keep, we just keep making them. We keep making them. I think Daniel referenced that last week too. I think that's like been quoted like maybe four or five times in the last month from this pulpit. Meaning that we will literally devote our lives to anything that crosses our path. We will just devote ourselves to anything. And this is what we see taking place in Ephesus. Let's see. Let's take a look. And Pastor Seski read this, but I'm going I'm to read it again. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. Right? This is what theologians call divine necessity. It's a little tiny word in the Greek, day. And it means necessary, I must do this. And we see Luke use that a lot in the book of Acts and in his gospel. I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there rose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Meaning like, he's got some things to talk about. This is a really big deal. He's very upset, Demetrius. And it goes on. He gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnific magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. We're going to stop there for a second. A couple things, right? Verses 21 and 22, we see Paul resolving in the spirit to head into Rome. Rome, tradition holds, is where Paul eventually was killed. And so what is happening here is that the Spirit, which is what the Spirit does, is leading him to suffering and ultimately his death. Right? This is what happened with Jesus as well. Right? Remember, the Spirit led him into the wilderness so that he might do battle with the devil. But he led, the Spirit led him. It actually says that the Spirit kind of thrust him into the wilderness. Meaning that the Spirit doesn't mean that if we're Spirit-filled or if we're following the Spirit, it does not mean that life will be easy. In fact, it means quite the contrary, that life will be difficult, filled with suffering. Oh, but we possess God. Right? There's a pretty enormous caveat there. Yes, we will, we will have a life of suffering if we follow the Spirit. Our life will be completely disrupted, but we possess God. It's a very important thing. And it says that no little disturbance concerning the way. See, see, not everyone was burning their books, right? Not everyone was burning their books. A lot of people did, 
But there were some people who were like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. You're not going to mess with my livelihood, and you're not going to mess with my God. You're not going to mess with my livelihood, and you're not going to mess with the renown of this city. You're not going to mess with that. So Demetrius, whose livelihood depended on the cult of Artemis, knew that devotion to Jesus meant less money in his pocket. Now, maybe there's even a little bit of nobility here. This is where I want us to step into the shoes of others. Because what we tend to do is we tend to just kind of throw stones saying, you are wrong, you are not like us. Now, don't get me wrong. Demetrius is not correct in his views. But there's a real fear here. There's a real fear because his livelihood is going to be impacted by the good news of Jesus. That's what's going to happen. And not only his livelihood, this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. There's a cultural pride and identity that is being lost as the gospel makes its way throughout the world. I want us to think about that. There's a cultural pride and identity that is lost as the gospel takes root in the lives of people. And so there's a financial fear and a loss of cultural pride and identity fear. And these are big deals. These are big deals. And we should care about these sorts of things. Even us in this room, we care about these things. When people are struggling financially, we care about these things. In a couple of weeks, we're going to root for the United States of America in the Olympics because, because we do love our country. But, but what happens when we grip these things so tightly, they become gods. That's where the issue starts to bubble up to the surface. See, Demetrius worshipped his culture. He worshipped his livelihood. And he knew that when those things were taken from him, he would have no hope. He would have nothing to lean on. And so what ends up happening as we'll continue reading the text is when they heard these things, in verse 28, if you read with me, when they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, possibly those 12 still, saying like, no, 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 Paul, that's not the place for you. And Paul's all like, no, no, I got to get there. And they're like, no, 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 chill, chill. Do not go in there. But when Paul wished to go to Munkratton, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were the rulers in Asia, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. What a cool little, like, point there. Like, he was friends with the rulers of Asia. Like, he was there for two years. He lived among the people. He made friends with the people. But that's not the, really the point, but it's a little sidebar that's interesting. And now some of them cried out one thing, some another. That's right. Some one thing, some another. It's chaos. Confusion. Everyone's all over the place. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. They were just there. There was a crowd, and so they just started yelling and screaming. And just chaos overtook this theater, which seated thousands upon thousands of people. I forget the actual number, but it was an enormous theater. And they're in there just screaming and yelling, and there's confusion 
And everything is just insane. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, when they recognized that he was not like them, they screamed for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, they fixate all of their rage on a man named Alexander for the sole reason that he was Jewish. He wasn't like them. The city was filled with confusion. Even as I read this text, it's, it's a confusing text because it just seems like it's all over the place. We don't really know what's happening because these couple of people were terrified that they were going to lose their livelihoods, they were going to lose their God, and their cultural identity was at stake. Right? One group of people's lives are disrupted. They burn all their books, and they follow Jesus. Another group of people's lives are disrupted, and they lose their minds. And they lose their minds. We all experience fear, disappointment, uncertainty. But see, the difference for those of us who belong to the family of God is we have which means we ought not despair because despair is what leads to confusion. Now I'm going to start offending people for a moment. A few questions to consider. How many of us were fearful or are still fearful that Biden is in office? How many of us were fearful of Trump's presidency? How many of us long for a country from years ago while some are looking for our country to change and be become something you believe has failed to be? See, political idols and financial idols are some of the most powerful. They're some of the most powerful because, because we find security in those things. We find security in those things. And what we have seen occur in our country as a result of these fears, riots that swept the nation a year ago, friendships and families torn apart over differing political views, riots at the Capitol on January 6th, continued bullying on social media, both sides boasting their own self-righteousness, caught in echo chambers, unwilling to listen and engage. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The question we need to wrestle with is, who is our Artemis? Who's our Artemis? See, I'm not going to read through the rest of the text. Eventually, the riot is dealt with. Paul departs from the city and heads for Macedonia. But what we see taking place is how the gospel disrupts an entire city. Because an entire city had gripped its God so tightly that when they were challenged, the only reasonable response for them was blind rage. A rage that ended up eventually being concentrated on one man because he seemed to represent everything they hated. We've all seen this take place. We've seen it take place so violently over this last year. We've experienced it probably in our own families, in our own friendships. Even in this family, we've experienced it. Oh, but the gospel calls us to something, something more. The gospel calls us to something so much more beautiful. The gospel calls us to, to 
unity, a unity of faith, where we can come together as the family of God. See, see this sort of behavior is expected from the world, which is precisely who's rolling it out in this text. The world is living this way. And this, this sort of idol worship, it actually makes sense outside the family of God. And I don't say this because, because I believe that non-Christians are incapable of exercising self-control or that they're all just wicked and horrible. No, I don't, I don't actually think that's true. I think common grace is a real thing. And that, and that there are plenty of, of good people, not good in the sense of righteous before God, which Pete read about this morning, but, but good in the sense that, like, we'd probably be friends. We are friends. I hope we're friends with them because that's the kind of people we need to be. But rather, it makes sense because to take away someone's hope, whatever that hope might be in, is to take away a piece of who they are. It's to take away what they rely on for their security. To take away their freedom is to infringe upon who they are as individuals. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we have to care about this stuff. We have to engage these things. But see, what's most terrifying to me, and I've seen it in myself, I'm, I'm preaching to me right now, and I've observed it in both right and left-leaning Christians, is that when our fists are gripped so tightly around our idols, idols of what we think our country should look like, who we think the best political candidate might be, as if those things are really going to provide us with salvation. When our fists are gripped so tightly around those idols that we forget who we are and the name by which we are all named. And we begin responding in rebellion and riot rather than faithfulness and repentance. That's when the world and the ruler of this world has seeped into the family of God and have, has seemingly won the day. Seemingly won the day. I was reading Psalm 51 this morning in my devotions, just providentially. I was going to say randomly, but I don't necessarily believe in random occurrences. And and the, and the verse that stood out is, is, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. See, all these things, these idols, political, financial, sexual, whatever the case may be, these idols, they rob us of the joy of God's salvation. They rob us of that. And we need to take care as the people of God. We need to be mindful. We need to be watching so that these things don't become ultimate things. I'm not saying that we don't care about politics. I'm not saying that we don't care about our finances. We need to be wise and shrewd in all of these areas. What I'm saying is that how we respond when they're disrupted a little bit will show us who our God truly is. And I've been wrestling with this. I wrestle with this. I have fears. We all have fears in this room. We all have uncertainties. Oh, but, but let's pray that God would restore unto us the joy of his salvation. The joy of his salvation. Redeemer Fellowship, our focus this last year has been on unity. And as we inch our way toward a new ministry year come September, it's a focus that we must never forget can't forget that focus. See, our hope 
And our salvation is in Christ alone. And that salvation stretches beyond the borders of this building, this state, and this country. It stretches across the aisle. It obliterates the dividing wall of hostility wherever it takes root. And we need to continue fighting against the temptation to allow any other identity or God to have its way with us because our identity is in Christ alone and he is our king. See, the kingdom demands our allegiance. It demands our allegiance. And what's beautiful about Sunday mornings is that we get to participate in the Lord's Supper together, together as the family of God. And this unity is displayed in the Lord's table as we all come together, regardless of race, ethnicity, political affiliation, socioeconomic status. We are one family of God, seated at one table, and we will be seated at this table for all eternity. See, this is a foretaste of that meal that we will share, the wedding feast, together in eternity. It's a foretaste of that. And like I said earlier, we often just focus on our individual salvations when it comes to the gospel. Oh, but there's so much more to it than that. Absolutely, it's about our individual salvation, but it is so much so about the breaking down of that dividing wall of hostility so that the nations might know Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that his, his kingdom would stretch into all the world. The gospel disrupts. The gospel changes everything. We are one people seated at one table. We are one family. And we must not allow the enemy into our midst, but rather we must wage war against the enemy with weapons of love, mercy, compassion, and understanding so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's good news, Redeemer that's the best news. That's the news I'm going to continue preaching until the day Jesus takes me home because that's the only thing that matters. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not Artemis. Who is your Artemis? Who is your Caesar? We must all repent of those things and submit ourselves to Christ Jesus. That's what God is calling us to. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for your amazing grace, Lord God. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of all creation and that everyone, every tribe, every tongue will bow and confess that you are Lord. Father, I pray for us as a family of God here in Tom's River. Lord, that we would manifest that grace toward one another, that faithfulness toward one another, toward you, that we would indeed share together in the life of Christ by loving you and by loving one another and our neighbors, Lord God. Father, it's in Christ's most precious and holy name that we pray these things. Amen.